Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. This passage is entitled, Jesus at the Feast of Booze. If you would, please follow along with me in your Bibles or on your scripture sheet. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you to God. Hiding behind a piano there. Way to go, Samuel. Way to go. You know, we uh, shy away from applause in this church. Uh, and uh, we should sometimes. But there's times just because of the sheer joy of what happens in our midst. There's a time to applause. Samuel, thank you. Now, I'm not going to say, uh, well, I am going to say why. I have waited till uh, now to make this announcement because I don't know, you know, have you noticed how not everyone is here, you know, at 1030 when we start with our announcements? Now, I don't want to say anything about you if you're not here, but uh, uh we are getting ready. There's a building going up. We see changes every single week. Uh, and for the first time in our history, uh, we are about this fall, uh, as we move into this building, we're going to be able to have Sunday school. We're going to be able to have Sunday school for all the children, for the adults. And that means that uh, our We'll meet here not at 10.30, but we'll meet here at 9.30. Uh, and there is an insert in your bulletin. Pay attention to that insert as we uh, and, and pray about it. But most of all, get prepared to join us at this time for the adult studies, for the children's studies. What a blessing God has given us. Finally, 
that we can uh, have Sunday school on the Lord's Day morning. Before our message this morning, uh, we usually have a time of prayer. And this morning, I have asked Bright Hanson, the Reverend Bright Hanson, uh, who is pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Pratsville, Alabama, uh, and has visited with us before, and he's a dear friend. And I've asked him to come and pray for the preaching of God's Word this morning. Bryant, it's good to have you. Karen, you make him look better. It's it's better when you're with him. He's been here without you. I do know what it's like to look up and see a big blank spot in the sanctuary, and then you bow to pray, and everybody thinks you're just praying the pastoral prayer, but you're really praying, Lord, please fill this up by the time I look up. And we do. I think it's either a Presbyterian or a Southern thing. I don't know which. Let's go before the Lord our God in prayer. Our Father, we ask over and over again in various circumstances that you, the God of this universe, will speak. We have prayed it in times when we are in great need and almost with rug burns on our knees as we slide in. And there are times when we pray it in great joy, when we realize that we are allowed the presence of your Holy Spirit upon us and among us. So I pray for the preaching of your word. I pray that with this gathering of your people, this portion of your church, that we will realize that we have met with the one and only true living holy God. You who are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the creator of this world, that by the word of your power you spoke and things were placed in where things were not. We pray to the one who spoke and Lazarus stepped forth alive after being dead. We pray that as John preaches your word, that you, Holy Spirit of God, would anoint him with your power and that you would anoint our ears with your hearing, that our hearts would be different, that we would be different, that we would know that power that no unbeliever knows, that we would know what it is to have been in the presence of our Father. We pray that you would do this and do it with great with great reception to us. Bless us, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. When Jesus chose aloneness, 
R.C. Sproul would tell his students in seminary as they began to prepare a sermon on a passage of Scripture. He would tell them the very first thing you should do is look for the drama in that passage. Well, you will not have any trouble finding the drama in the passage before us this morning. The entire seventh chapter is filled with drama. It begins in the very first verse. Look at it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go down into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Folks, it is drama when the national leadership of your country is seeking to end your life. And that's just the beginning of the drama. What else happens in this chapter? Jesus faces the unbelief of his own family. What else happens in the chapter? At the great feast of tabernacles in the capital city, there is a boiling, constant controversy about Jesus. He's the subject of every conversation. What else happens in this chapter? An arrest, an arrest warrant is put out on Jesus in Jerusalem. The police officers are sent to arrest him. What else happens in this chapter? At the most significant moment, the high point of this great feast, Jesus makes yet another claim to deity in what has become one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible. So drama fills this narrative. The chapter begins up north in the boonies of Galilee. Why is Jesus up there? Well, you could say, I know the answer to that because Galilee is where he lived. It was his home. He was raised in Nazareth and he was living at the present time in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually center their Gospels more chronologically than John, but they center their Gospels on his ministry in Galilee. One of the major differences between the Gospel of John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel is that John centers his attention on Jesus' ministry in Judea, in Jerusalem. John here says, breaks with the, the theme of his book and says, but now he's spending time only in Galilee. And he gave the reason. And it wasn't that he lived there. Look at it in that first verse. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now when you read that, and I've had people ask me about this. Why? That's not an anti-Semitic statement when he says the Jews were seeking to kill him. You'll hear that sometimes, and it's usually not in church. It's usually from the secular world who knows absolutely nothing about the Bible. And they really don't know and don't consider that Jesus is a Jew. John, the writer of the gospel, is a Jew. His 12 disciples were Jewish. Galilee was Jewish. 
When you read the Jews were seeking to kill him in the Gospels, the writer is saying the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders, the members of the Sanhedrin were seeking to put an end to it. The center of Jewish authority was not in Galilee. It was in Judea, in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was headquartered in Jerusalem. That's what John meant. It was a dangerous place. He's saying it was a dangerous place for Jesus to be. So this narrative in chapter 7 begins with a conversation between Jesus and his brothers. Well, there's another problem. You say, Jesus had brothers? Some denominations, trying to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary, make an attempt to say that these were Jesus' cousins. No, the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus had not only brothers, but had sisters produced from the marriage of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born. Look at Matthew on your scripture sheet, or turn in your Bible to Matthew 13, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers... James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? So yes, he had brothers and he had sisters. John records here that these brothers did not believe. Look at verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now think about that. Now. Here's Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. Here are all these miracles. And it says, they did not believe. They did believe his miracles. They couldn't help but to believe. They had been at the wedding feast of Cana. Mary was there. The family would have been there. They knew. They, they knew about the astound, his astounding work. When John states that they did not yet believe, he's saying that they're very, they're, they were very much like that crowd in chapter 6. Remember, they wanted to make Jesus king, not because they understood his deity. They said, this, this man is, is just a natural to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and he can provide bread, he can provide food for all the country. He would meet their physical needs. He would get rid of the Romans. This is, the, the brothers did not understand the spiritual nature of the mission of Jesus. They didn't understand his deity. And that's what John meant when he says they didn't believe. Now their advice to Jesus made sense with the earthly mission that they envisioned. Look at verses 2 through 4 as they give advice to Jesus. Now the, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See what they wanted? If he was a Messiah, he needed to go to the center of power. He would need to go to New York City or he needed to go to London and show his stuff there. And there was no better time. This was the feast 
of weeks of the, the, the Jews' feast of booth. John says that, and the brothers are saying, hey, there's a great feast going on in Jerusalem right now. You usually go there. We all usually go there. Go down and show your stuff. Now, to understand this passage, we need to know, and you probably don't want to know this, but listen to me. It will help you understand what's really taking place. There were three great feasts commanded by God for all of Israel. The first feast was Passover. It was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It marked the beginning of the barley harvest. It was in the spring. In this feast, Israel was not only celebrating the barley harvest, but the feast itself was centered, and it's why it's called the Passover. It was centered on remembering what God had done in Egypt when they had put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And the wrath of God had passed over those households with the blood on the door as his wrath and judgment fell on Egypt. And he commanded at that time that every year they would reenact the Passover. And they would have a Passover meal and they would put the blood on the door. The second feast of the year was the Feast of, of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. It came during the summer. It was seven weeks after the Passover. At this feast, the first fruits of the early wheat harvest were brought to the Lord. That feast was, didn't have the same celebratory nature. It was not as huge. The third great feast was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. That's the one mentioned here. This marked the end of the entire harvest system, the har harvest season, excuse me. The crops were in the barns, and Israel gathered to celebrate the goodness of God on the nation with the great harvest. Why did they call it the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles? When you think of a tabernacle, you think of where Israel worshipped in the wilderness. It was called the Tabernacle. It wasn't the, the great physical building. The temple was built later under Solomon, and that was a physical, hard building. The Tabernacle was a tent. And the word tabernacle meant tent. And so at this time, during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tents, the Feast of, Feast of Tabernacles, Israel would, people and families would build, would have little booths, little tents that they would erect. It would be on the rooftops. It would be outside in the streets. It would be in the temple. It would be by the city wall. And they would temporarily dwell in these booths remembering their sojourn through the wilderness. And you see the contrast when they, were, when they were people without land, people without crops, and God gave them manna, and God gave them quail, and God gave them water. Now they were in this great land and celebrating a harvest. So, so they were remembering God's blessings in the wilderness. And it, was, it rivaled the Passover in the number of people that came. This was very popular. It was like our Thanksgiving, except it lasted much, much longer. So the brothers were right. With the Feast of Booths going on in Jerusalem, Jesus, go down to Jerusalem. Show them this stuff. This was the, 
what we can call the Madison Avenue approach. Go advertise yourself. Make yourself known. Show your miracles. In fact, that they, the fact that they told him, go work your miraculous work in Jerusalem. They weren't doubting the miracles. They're saying, what are you doing here in Galilee? You're going to be, you could be a great king. Go down there. They had not been hearing what Jesus had been saying about dying for sin, about being a sacrifice, about being the Lamb of God. They were thinking of, in terms of a great popular king on a throne. That's what, that's what was in their mind. It was not the plan of God which involved a Savior on a cross. That was outside of their frame of reference. So what did Jesus say to them? It's interesting. Look at it in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, Jesus' response may seem strange to your ears, but it made it makes perfect sense. He was saying, it's not time, guys. My time has not yet fully come. There'll be a time for me to go up to Jerusalem. It's time for you to go up. It's a feast of booths. We always go up. The leaders do not want to take your life. They're not trying to kill you. They're after me. They want to end my life. It would have been easy. Think about it. It would have been easy. What other response could Jesus have made? It would have been easy for him to say, all right, I'll do that. Come on. Let's all go up to Jerusalem together. It would have probably meant certain death to his brothers. If he had gone up with his brothers and made the splash they were recommending, he would be placing their lives in danger. I think that's one very real reason that he made this response. But it's not the most significant reason. In recent weeks, we've seen over and over again, think with me, we've seen this over and over again. When Jesus was quizzed about what he was doing, and even when he wasn't quizzed, he, he never said, these are my works, these are my ideas. What did he say? This is from the Father, didn't he? Is that what he always said? This is the Father's plan. This is what the Father told me to do. I'm not here to do my will. I'm here to do the Father's will. He was not flying by the seat of his pants. He was doggedly at every step being obedient to a plan laid before the foundation of the world. Six months later, he would go up to the feast of Passover. He would enter the city riding on a colt and the crowds would proclaim him Messiah and he, it would be his announcement that he was indeed the Messiah coming. Not coming to a throne, but coming to a cross. But they didn't know that when he entered the city. In a week's time during that Passover, the trap of the Sanhedrin would be sprung and Jesus would be crucified. 
That was six months away. It was not time. He was single-minded. Why didn't he go up with his brothers? He's protected. But he was also avoiding a great confrontation between the crowds. And we're going to see, read on in chapter 7, and you'll see the crowds in Jerusalem were at each other arguing about Jesus. No, he would wait till the Passover because he, it was ordained, he would be the Passover lamb, the lamb of all lambs. So Jesus sent his brothers up to the feast and then he did what he planned to do the whole time. He went up incognito. No brothers, no disciples, no crowds. He went up alone. I was fascinated by this early in the week. Think about that. He sends his brothers on. Wouldn't you like to have been there? And he starts his journey from Galilee alone. Probably no one noticed. No one said, there's Jesus. He went up alone. And he chose that. As we take in this whole scene, and see Jesus walking alone to Jerusalem. I want us to take away three important truths. And you're sitting there saying, is John at just now at the beginning of his message? No, I'm not. But you had to get the context. We couldn't draw from it until you really understood what was going on. No, we're getting toward the end, actually. First, we take away the brothers of unbelief in this passage, became the brothers of faith. Look at Acts 1.12 on your scripture sheet or in your Bibles. Then they returned. This is the disciples after the ascension of Jesus. Jesus told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait. It's after the ascension. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now the 13th verse of Acts 1. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room and they were where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In John 7 they had not believed what their brother was saying about being the Lamb of God, about sacrifice, about dying for sin. They had not understood, but the resurrection changed all that. And there they stood shoulder to shoulder with his closest disciples. Do you know that James, his brother, became leader of the church in Jerusalem? And he wrote the book of James in the Bible. Jude, his younger brother, wrote the letter of Jude. The brothers of unbelief in this passage became the brothers of faith. This meant so much to me this week. Most every week I must sit with a family that's going through a mess. It happens all the time. Maybe the mess was caused by a broken marriage. Maybe the mess was caused by adultery. Maybe the mess was caused by 
an addiction, an addiction had by parents or an addiction had by children. Maybe the mess was called by cruel parents or rebellious children. But I remind that family that this is not, this is, this is not rare. It's not something that's exceptional, this mess. Every family, you name the family and I'll show you the mess. It's not hard. We live in a fallen world. Every parent, children, listen to me. Your parents look at them right now. They're sinners. Every one of them. Children look at you. I mean, parents look at your children. I do not understand parents that idolize children. Something's wrong with you. You know, you forget when they're in going through the terrible twos, you forget for sure what they were like in junior high school. Children are sinners. Parents are sinners. And we make messes. Jesus, Jesus had unbelief. He was perfect. What a brother he would have been. Jesus had a mess in his own family. He had unbelievers in his own family. But he didn't write his brothers off. In the end, they would become brothers of faith. Now, this is not a guarantee that every member of our families will come to the faith. It is a reminder that we should not allow sin and Satan to discourage us into accepting that such darkness is completely unredeemable, that it's permanent, that it can't be changed. We don't stop praying. As I was writing this this week, I was thinking about a friend of mine in Lexington, Kentucky. He had a very, very godly mother, and he was exactly the opposite as a child and a teenager and an adult. He didn't go to church. He didn't want to go to church. He didn't like Christ. He didn't like the Bible. And this was a devout, devout. This lady was so devout. She was a saint. Everyone loved her. Everyone, she was a Christian model of, 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 of what, what you would want in a neighbor, what you would want in a mother. She went through several years of suffering from cancer and died. After she died, shortly after she died, went home to glory. This man became a Christian. And I asked him. I came there after the fact. I did not know her, just heard about her. I said, what happened? And he said, I watched her for two years go through that suffering. She said, he said, she was always confident. Not that she would be healed. She was confident in God, confident in Christ. She said she didn't lose any of her joy. She was joyous through the whole thing. He said, I watched her die. And it was with confidence, with joy. It was looking forward. And he said, the Holy Spirit convinced me. Now I know it was the Holy Spirit. I didn't know then. 
but he opened my eyes to Christ. You know, that mother, when she left this earth, she had not seen her son become a Christian. She'll meet him in glory, but it was not here. When you think all is lost spiritually with your family, remember the brothers of Jesus. The brothers of unbelief in this passage became the brothers of faith. Secondly, sometimes God calls his children to walk through this hostile world carefully, judicially, very measured. This time as Jesus went up to a hostile Jerusalem, he went judicially. It was incognito. He protected his brothers probably protected his disciples. He avoided a real face-to-face confrontation with the leaders of the Sanhedrin. He would wait till Passover to make the great entrance into Jerusalem to become the Passover lamb. Often as we face hostility to Christ in the world, as we face the hostility of the world toward scriptures, we face hostility of the world toward our Judeo-Christian faith. We're, we're tempted just to have the same reaction. Just be bold. Go toe-to-toe. Get in the world's face. Be antagonistic. And there's a time for that. But we learn from this there are times that biblical Wisdom dictates a quieter, a more measured response. So I was writing this, I was thinking about the Christians of which I've, of whom I've read who helped the Jews escape the genocide and cruel persecution of the Nazis. They didn't get in the Nazis' face. They didn't go toe-to-toe with them. They had to be very cloaked if they were to serve the Jews who were being persecuted and being killed. Martin Luther actually used this passage in John 7 to reply to those, and I can't imagine anyone going to Luther. I laughed at this bright when when I read it. I can't imagine anyone going to Luther and encouraging him to be more confrontational than he already was. I, I just, he was very confrontational. But evidently there were people that really wanted him to exert himself in a more obvious way. And this is what Luther said. Quote, Notice here that Christ gives danger a wide berth. He did not want to expose himself to danger and tempt God until he felt obliged to go and his divine office demanded it, end quote. So the, <clears throat> what do we take from this? The brothers of unbelief in this passage become brothers of faith. Sometimes God calls his children to walk through this hostile world judiciously, carefully, measuredly. Thirdly and finally, sometimes, you take this away, sometimes we will walk alone in this hostile world because of our obedience to Christ. Now, this is what it's really about. This is what I came away with that really hit me. Watching Jesus in this passage walk from Galilee into Jerusalem, into the den of lions without his family, without his disciples, 
without the crowds, there's a pathos, there's a sadness in this scene. But there's a powerful resolve. What was that resolve? He was single-minded in obedience to the Father. We speak of our obedience to Christ. Jesus lived under obedience, obedience to the Father. They spoke, we've seen it over and over and over again. It's what this passage is about. There was a point in my life when I was making a decision that would alter my entire ministry. I was making a decision about leaving the Presbyterian denomination to which I belong, the denomination which I'd been raised. The denomination for several decades had been descending into gross unbelief. We've talked about this before. I believed that denomination had become apostate. This was in 1970, 71, 72. I believe the scriptures obligated me to leave the denomination, not because I just didn't like it. They were apostate. Apostate apostate meant that they were denying the cardinal doctrines of salvation. Most of my friends did not hold my position. In my own family, my older brother was in the ministry. My older brother-in-law was in the ministry. They were not ready to take. They were good men. They weren't ready to take this action. I'm sure you know, as you've heard me speak of my father, I had, I deeply admired my father. He was a man of great wisdom, a stalwart servant of God in my view. I held him in high esteem. I called him and asked him to meet with me. We had talked around the issue several times. But I called him as I was right at the point of making this decision. We lived about an hour apart. We we met for lunch in Abingdon, Virginia. I still remember the restaurant. It was the, the, the name of it was the Wagon Wheel. As we sat over lunch, I told him I was about to announce that I was leaving the denomination. I told him that most of the local church I served wanted to leave with me. I gave him my biblical reasons. I told him that he had always told me to be wise. I always got the impression from what he said that if you acted wisely, you would stay out of trouble. But this time I said, Dad, I sense if I take this action, I'm going to be in a boatload of trouble. I said, I'm going to find myself in the middle of a storm. I said, I I really believe that. As I said, am I acting wisely? Your father had listened for over an hour as I spoke. And I was greatly relieved when he said, John, I think you are acting very wisely. And then he added something I wish he hadn't. He said, but sometimes 
if you act with wisdom, it's going to get you killed. And then he went on to make it worse. He said, if you take this course of action, John, you're going to find yourself very much alone. You're not going to have many friends. That was the last meeting I had any, to discuss this with anyone before I publicly announced from the pulpit that I was leaving. And I did find myself very much alone. Thought about this all week long. I found myself in the middle of a storm, a storm like I'd never seen. Along the way, I thought it would destroy me. However, God used those two years to mold and change my ministry for the rest of my days. I'm not the same person I was when I started. Listen to me. We're at the end. We live in a culture that is becoming more hostile to Jesus every day. If you can't identify with Jesus staying in Galilee, you don't know what's happening in Fayette County. In Shelby County, you don't know what's happening in this country. I promise you, if you have the dogged determination of, like Jesus had to follow the will of the Father, if you have that dogged determination to follow the will of Christ, you're going to be alone sometimes. Some of you are leaving for college this year. You go to a major university. I promise you, you follow Christ on that university, you're going, to, you're going to find yourself alone sometimes, very much alone. It doesn't have to be at the university. Sometimes it's right here in Fayette County. Several years ago, I watched a young man in Memphis, in Shelby County. He came from a very, very secular family, an unbelieving family. Hated the church. He started going to church, started going to the youth. And in high school, he became a Christian. One of the the most humorous meetings I've ever had. So this very secular father, unbelieving father, came to see me. I was pastor of this large church in East Memphis. In his mind, someone in my position couldn't possibly believe the gospel. He thought, certainly John doesn't believe this fairy tale. And he came to me to get me to talk to his son and and persuade him not to be a Christian because these were just fairy tales. (laughs) I said, are you kidding me? I said, I'm like, I said, these aren't fairy tales. This is truth. No, I'm not going to talk to your son and tell him that. But I thought about that young man that week. Every time he went home, it wasn't when he went to school. When he got up in the morning, he was in the heart of an unbelieving family, but he was a Christian. When he came home from school every day, he was coming home to a home that was hostile to the Jesus he was following. Here's the end of it. Jesus could have had the acclamation of the crown. They would have carried him on their shoulder to the throne. But he chose obedience. He chose the commendation of the Father. Well done, son. He chose that over the acclamation of the crowd. And that 
will often be our choice. We're sinners. We'll make the wrong choice sometimes. But it will always be be between the popularity of the crowd and the commendation of the Father. Which do you want? Which 